Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and travelled to a distant country and there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country and he began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired hands have bread enough to eat and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and he went to his father. But while he was still far away, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and he put his arms around him and he kissed him. And then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his elder son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called uh, one of the servants and asked him, what's going on? He replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's got him back safe and sound. And the son became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him. But he answered his father, listen, for all these years I've been working like a slave for you and I've never disobeyed your command. Yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you were always with me. And all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and he's been found. For the word of God in scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. That's a cracker of a story, isn't it? You can see why if you're a painter, particularly in the time of Rembrandt when religious paintings were what really sold, you couldn't leave it alone. In fact, there's another version of that Rembrandt painting where he has another go at the prodigal son story as well. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's the story of the lost son. It's the story of the loving father. 
It's the story of the unforgiving son. It's, it's ended up with all those names. It's definitely the story about two sons, isn't it? And it's a story about the way they understood the world, what we would call a worldview. A worldview is the, the skeleton inside the body of a culture. It's something you don't talk about because it's assumed. But it actually does everything. It's what, where everything comes from. It's the assumptions that we make about how the world is that we don't tell each other very often. Because we don't need to, because we all assume the same things. One of the worldviews that 20th century people have grown up with is the idea that everything is material. If you can't see it and touch it or examine it or experiment on it, it isn't a real thing. Now that's began to weaken in the beginning of the 21st century as people take a much deeper interest in spirituality and try to pay attention to, to traditional cultures. In our case, the indigenous people of Australia who have a completely different set of assumptions about the world. One of them being, and this is put very badly, but one of them being that there, it isn't just the things you can see and touch with your physical body that is real in the world. There are more real things than the stuff we can see and touch. And we're, as a culture, beginning to rethink that in a way that we, we weren't doing, perhaps in the middle of the 20th century. So a worldview kind of explains how the world is and how everything operates. And it, it explains how to be a human being. But it's so deep in our background that we don't think about it much. And I think that you can see worldviews happening in the story that we call the prodigal son. The younger son, you notice how everything in his story happens fast. It needs to happen now. Father, give me my share of the property now. And then it says, a few days later, he's off. So this property that presumably has taken many years, possibly many generations to build up, he tears apart in minutes. Because for him, one of the things that is really at the base of what it means to be a human being is you've got to get out into the world, differentiate yourself from everyone else and make your mark we would describe it as getting a good education and a good job. But there's lots of other ways to do that. And that's central to, what, to what's motivating him. And he can't wait. And you, you can't wait. If the purpose of life is to make a mark and to differentiate yourself and to be an individual, then you've got to get on with that. We're somewhat uncertain about a young woman or a young man who in their 30s are still living with mum and dad. We kind of feel that something's missing in their life. They haven't done what perhaps they should have done. Maybe they're frightened or maybe they kind of feel locked in. We don't know, but it somehow doesn't feel right. And that's our worldview kicking in. We haven't, hadn't needed to think about it until we, we have to address it with someone like that. And then we start thinking, oh, well, I'm not sure whether that's... It's important to differentiate yourself. It's necessary in fact, our whole culture is built around that. The, the rise of the individual that 
You can mark to anywhere from the beginning of the Enlightenment to the, the beginning of the Renaissance to, as, as I think you can go right back to the stories uh, and the attitudes of St. Paul in the New Testament, which is much earlier than the Gospels. This idea that you as an individual are the most important base unit in the culture and in society and you need to find yourself as a human being. And that's now become kind of so central to our culture. A couple of years ago there was a, an advert for <coughs> a motor car um, and it had the brand at the bottom and the, and the big letters on it on a billboard were for the most important person in the world. And in our culture we have no, we have no trouble at all understanding what that advert is. If you'd have shown that same advert in the middle of um, the life of Jesus in the Roman Empire, well, they would have known who the most important person in the world is. It was the emperor. Or maybe God. Or maybe the priest. Or maybe the father of the family. The paterfamilias that ran the whole clan. But we know exactly who that person is when we see that advert. It's not a problem for us at all. Then you've got the oldest son, who he differentiates himself too, but it's about who his status is, who is, what his history has been for all these years. This is what I'm standing on. This is who I am for all these years. Look what I've done. And he differentiates himself from his dad and from his brother because he says, but when this son of yours, not when this brother of mine, when this son of yours, some alien to me, comes back, which he's come, comes back after having devoured your property, not ours, not collectively, but yours. So he's living this sense that he has done the right thing all his life and it turns out that he's been disrespected. He's lives, he lives with this wound. He needs to be identified as for who he is. And yet he's living with this wound that he's been left and disrespected. So we've got these two sons, both of whom are quite lost. And then you've got this father who seems to have completely other assumptions about the nature of the world and the way things should be. He divides this property up. Well, he, does it, he does it without any kind of qualms. There's nothing in, this, in the text that he delays or that he questions it or that he says no. He just does it. And I think it's because what he says later is true for him all the time when he says to the older son, but everything I have is yours. I don't... It's almost as if he's saying, I don't even understand what dividing up means. It's all yours, take it. He comes from a different worldview, a worldview that says everything is present and available for life. It's all a gift. So here, have as much as you need. Does he think the, the young son is making a wise decision? Probably not. But it's this great generosity of life. It's this wonderful thing of the giving of everything. And you can see it when the young son returns. He's developed a, a story to tell. We don't really know, and you can take your pick, 
Was he genuine when he says, Father, I have sinned you before you and before God? And, and then he, he, or is he just trying to get on his father's good side because that's the smart thing to do? He's starving after all. And starving people are usually smarter than people who aren't hungry because they can work out as best they can how to get some food. And he's not stupid. This is the best way. His dad's still got an enormous amount of, uh, of goods. So he goes to him. Either way, he's fully repentant and sorry, or he's just running a line. Doesn't seem to bother the father one. He doesn't care. He's not even interested in hearing the story. Almost before the son finishes the little patter, he's grabbing him and giving him a kiss and hugging him. And then he says, let's get out all the good stuff. And he gives him the best robe and a ring and they feast. What matters to this father is not what's done or not done. Not what an individual identity that needs to be carved out is doing or not doing for either of these sons. What's important for him is a much deeper truth And he lives it to the point where it looks crazy to us because he's willing to give up half or thereabouts of his goods to his younger son. He's living this truth that it's all a gift. It's all this great abundance and it's all interconnected. It's like we often say uh, when we're talking about our concerns about the environment is when we throw things away, where is away? We know there's no away. And we live with the sort of... I I live with the fiction that if I throw it in the bin uh, and then I take the bin out to the road, it goes away. And it does from my little property. But it would be nonsense for me to think that it's gone somewhere. It's still here. Because there's only here. It's all one thing. It's that deep interconnectedness of everything. It's like the way we talk about the environment as if it's a thing. There's the environment and there's us. Well, where are we? If we're not right in the middle of it, we're all deeply interconnected. And I think the father in this story, remember it's a story, this isn't things that happen to somebody, this is a story that Jesus made up to make some points. And he, he might be making the point I'm saying, and he might have been making 50 other points like all good stories do. But this, this point is the idea that everything is together in one thing. So, the, so even though the younger son leaves physically and goes somewhere else, there's no way in the, in the father's mind that he's gone anywhere at all. He's always interconnected. And so when he comes back with this blather about, oh, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, well, what's that nonsense? It's, it's just not a truth. The only truth is that their father and son always have been, always will be. When the father's dead, the son will still be the son of that father. It's just a reality of the world. And you might not like it. You might have had a terrible time with your father. And you have to work that out even well past his death. But the truth is, you've still got that connection. And so this father is working on that assumption. So when the son comes and says, I'm not worthy of this and and I'll do this, and he's not even listening to that because the bigger, deeper reality is we're all together in this. And when he says it to the older son who says to him, this son of yours 
who's gotten, who's made, made dissolute your property. When the father comes back, he says, This brother of yours has come home. He's reminding the older son that you are as deeply connected as the younger son. There is no way out of this, which may or may not be good news. In this story, of course, it is good news because the father is full of joy and generosity and love and forgiveness. And who doesn't want a story like that? Who doesn't want the fact that when we have lost our sense of who we are, or we try to wall ourselves in to make ourselves a, a separate individual because we've been so damaged by the way other people have treated us. Or so damaged by being forgotten or not acknowledged or being disrespected. Or when we've done something uh, spontaneously that's turned out terrible. What if none of those things were the true reality after all? What if the true reality was always this long, deep sense of all together? So when it's all screwed up, that's true. It is all screwed up. He was really hungry. He was starving. But there's a deeper reality of a oneness and a return to love that can't be ignored. And even when we try and keep score, like the older son, or we manipulate and plan and connive, like possibly the younger son, there's this deeper truth. And you know who tells it the most? And this is a great kicker in this story, the slave. Slaves less than human. If you know anything about the history of slavery in the United States, the terrible stories of the way and the terrible laws that were enacted to make it very clear that the person that we have bought is not a person but a thing that we can use. And so here's a slave in the story, the less than human one. And, you know, if you really want to get fancy, you can extrapolate out what's the less than human in our world. And I know we call it less, but other than human would be better. And that's the world of what that we call the world of nature. The world as it is, the interconnected world as it is, what the Franciscans, Franciscans have always called the first Bible. That God tells us who God is in the way of nature. And it's the slave, the other than human, who says these last words. Your brother has come. Your brother has come. The one you cannot ever be disconnected from. The one that you are intimately linked with. In your DNA you are connected. Your brother has come. And your father. You cannot be disconnected. The one with whom your DNA is linked. The one who is the central element of what it means to be a human being. Your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf. Has given generously. As everything is to us in our lives a gift. Why? Because he's got him back safe and sound. Because the universe, God, the divine, whichever language you want to use, is inviting us back in to the reality of it, safe and sound.
Yeah, so be it.